Hello, everyone. My name is Justice, and welcome to the Education is Broken, and we are here to fix it podcast. Today, I'm with my favorite partner of all time. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. My name is David, and I am the Senior Vice President of Marketing here at 24-7 Teach. It's a pleasure to be here, as always. Yes, and our distinguished guest... Hi, my name is Chelsea, and I'm the VP of Supplemental Education here at 24-7 Teach. All right. And today we're going to talk about the challenges of education from a parent's perspective. All right. So with that being said, Chelsea, what do you think are the biggest issues or challenges that our educational system faces from your perspective as being a, a very caring, loving parent? So overall, I think that most parents can relate to the experience of the education system just not fitting their child. So in whatever shape or form that is, your child doesn't fit into a box. You know, we all know that even when we're not parents, I think. But especially when you have multiple children, it becomes especially clear that None of them are the same. You know, you can't parent them the same. So why are we teaching them the same? So all of the issues that surround that, including the fact that, you know, kids can't learn outside the box, speak outside the box at school. There are no exceptions in terms of the way that you do your work, the way that you take notes, the way you do homework, you know, everything being standardized just doesn't feel right when you're a parent, you know, to essentially have to teach your child to adapt to a system that is not adapting to them. So that's the gist of it. I think there are a lot of really deep issues within that, but it's just the expectation of every student to be identical. That's the problem. Wow. Okay. So from a school perspective, they're thinking, you know, we have to educate hundreds of students per year. And from a teacher perspective, you're looking at, we have to educate from 15 to up to 35 students in my class. How do I do this at scale to the point where I make the biggest impact for the most students? I mean, I see that point, and it is definitely a question which uh, would be the natural response to that criticism about school, but I just don't think it's good enough. It's almost like saying, well, as long as we get most of them, it doesn't matter about the ones that fall through the gaps. But what if it was your child who was falling through the gaps? You know, you wouldn't have that same, oh, well, you know, well, at least Timmy's doing all right. At least little Johnny's doing good with his exams. Uh, never mind about my child, though, you know, it's... Maybe it's just not the right kind of learner. It's not equitable. It's not fair for everyone. And it's the one aspect of education for me which properly stands out where it's treated more like a business than it is an institution which is there to help children. It all boils down to how can we get the most results, the, the most money into the school, and it's less about how can we actually make sure that all students find what they're good at. How can we give every student the best experience for them? Even if it was a case of, okay, let's get all the children together when they first join a school, and instead of banding them by grades and and sets and whatever class they're in, you know, I don't know how you guys do it in the US. In the UK, we have, like, set one is, like, 
the best and set four or five is the lowest in ability. Why don't we start grouping them by, okay, these guys are visual learners. These guys are readers. These guys learn by doing things. And why don't we try and group students from how they learn? Would that not be something worth trying? I mean, I think that in the elementary classroom, that is something that even I have experienced teachers, you know, trying or talking about. But the thing is, they're not trained that way. They're not necessarily, you know, teachers who try to teach that way are, I think, doing so because they've recognized the problem and they have their own standards that they have to follow. So the issue is much deeper than just on a classroom level. It's it's more than just one teacher, you know, making a choice to follow or not follow the rules. It's more like, why are the rules the way they are, you know, which is a bigger problem. It's why do we think that all students need to learn certain benchmarks, certain points in education? Why are those important versus others? It's more an issue of what we value. And I think as parents, we're the first ones to say what we value our children not doing a lot of homework. You know, if a whole classroom or a whole school full of parents says my kid's not doing homework, which has happened, then the school really can't do much about it. It's, you know, basically kind of the old <laughs> revolution style is yeah, yeah. the way that I've seen work on a personal level, you know, and advocating for your child, whether they're advanced, whether they're behind, you know, no matter where they are, you can see that every parent just speaking up for what their child needs and not necessarily expecting a teacher to pay special attention to them and recognizing that, you know what, the teacher really doesn't have time to do this. And it's up to me to say, you know what, that's not good for my child. So my child's not going to do it. Eventually there will be fewer and fewer consequences and the system will have to adapt, I think. Hmm. That's a good point. So when you go back to the origins of, let's say, public school here in the United States, the origins of school was not necessarily to educate the people, but more so to control them and socialize them so they did not break laws. Mm -hmm. From a religious point of view where you teach kids or young learners how to read so they can read scriptures. But the origin of education was really more so for control. So with that being said, you are creating this one system to control all of your learners. And you're not necessarily differentiating it and saying, okay, where this learner learns this way, so we're going to create this type of system. They've just created one system. And over the years, obviously, differentiated instruction has come into the play, into the classroom. And educators are trained around it, but from my personal opinion, differentiation between academic level is the wrong type of differentiation that should take place in the classroom. So from a 24-7 teach perspective in our education model, differentiation comes from or focuses on effort, not necessarily academic level, because effort or the level of effort a student has they will rise to the occasion, meaning that they will overcome any obstacle that's put in front of them to meet the goal. And so when you have statements and you use psychology, I should say, to support the growth and effort in a learner, 
then you have or you can create a great educational experience for them. That's not necessarily in your control. So differentiation is something that has happened and is happening every day. The focus of it may be different, but from a parent perspective, obviously it seems like you are not seeing that with your child or with your children, I should say. Is that the case? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my oldest is in fifth grade in a public school. And while he gets, for example, gifted services, you know, one day a week, there is an acknowledgement of his needs in that way. But then, you know, he goes back into the standard classroom and is expected to fill his time. Like, for example, if he finishes an assignment early, it's go back and check over your work, do it again, make sure you did it correctly. There's no, you know, advancement. There's no, right. So it's like the only day of the week that he gets some kind of attention beyond that, or he's encouraged to be creative or not just sit there and do busy work is that one day a week that he's offered the gifted services. The rest of the time, you know, it's, you got to be like everyone else, sit in your chair and don't distract anyone, which is understandable, but it's frustrating for him because he has two wildly different experiences with two different peer groups. And the solution to that, I think, is not, hey, let's offer the child more advanced work, you know, and have the teacher just throwing more worksheets at him. You know, it's an acknowledgement that maybe he has the skill to teach another student something, or maybe he can go do some group work or go work, you know, in another classroom or, you know, there, there's so many different things that I think the teachers just aren't in a position to think about and maybe haven't considered that whether, like I said, whether a child's on the advanced end of the spectrum or they have special needs, no matter what it is, there are probably many creative solutions to their needs, like you said, around effort rather than just around let's create more work and change the level of the math or the reading or the science or whatever. That's not really the answer. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So do you find that your child is overly challenged or under-challenged in his current school? I mean, I think he's way under-challenged by the actual work itself. So what he's expected to do and learn, he's constantly needing more. And you know, to be fair, my younger one is in a private preschool. So I have the perspective of that compared to the public school. And it's the same thing. You know your children. And I personally pay attention and make sure that I offer them what they need at home in addition to what they're getting at school. But I think a lot of parents aren't in a position to do that. They don't feel confident enough to do that. So I think that we have a responsibility as parents and as educators to talk to parents about how is your kid feeling about class? Are they just completing their work? You know, because a lot of parents wouldn't be able to assess that really. I mean, I think the only reason I know that my child is under challenge is because I I pay attention to what he's capable of and I take him to the library and do all kinds of things outside of school that some parents may not have the energy, the time, the money, the wherewithal to be able to do that, you know? So that's obviously another issue, definitely an equity issue. Well, that is an important issue because that is another perspective from a parent, right? So I don't have the time to support my learner as much as he or she needs it. What do I do? What resources can I pull from? What support can I get to Mm -hmm. make sure my child has everything that he or she needs? 
Right. And I think when you ask a classroom teacher that question, for example, or someone that's maybe more traditionally trained, their answer is always more work, you know, and that's what their go-to is just, well, if your child's not challenged, give them more, you know, it's all about the quantity. It's have them do something that's a higher level. And really that's just, you know, shoving more information in their brain. That's not actually supporting their soft skills or their, you know, creativity or anything else. So I'm all about far less work and much better quality for all students, whether you're advanced or not. And I think parents don't have confidence that sometimes the things that you're doing within your family. So even if you're just taking a trip to the beach or something, I mean, that can be an educational experience for all ages. And that's how kids learn best. I mean, you know, when they're playing or when they're doing something that they don't realize is educational. So some of it is that, you know, parents may not know that they're already doing those things to support their kids because they don't think of themselves as educators. Going back to that work issue, teachers will give in more work or, or harder work. It's just, it's a backwards way of looking at it. Because again, if we use your example of your eldest, he's, he finishes his work quickly and she gives him a more advanced worksheet, that might keep him busy for another 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so. But then the next lesson, he's going back to doing what everyone else is doing. And, you know, it's just furthering the gap between his ability and the ability of the rest of the class. And then it's just going to increase his boredom threshold, you know, to the point where... The work isn't challenging or engaging for him anymore. He's more likely just going to, you know, his head's going to wander. He's maybe not going to pay attention, which could lead to other issues. And like you said, I think there's definitely much more creative ways. And I would agree. I don't think more work or more worksheets is the answer in this example for gifted children because it's just furthering the gap. It's almost like giving them a taste and then taking it away again. It's like, oh, yeah, we can challenge you for 10 minutes, but then you're going to have to go back to another hour lesson of stuff, which is very easy for you. Well, and what happens is that tendency to throw more work at a student starts to bottleneck by the time they get to high school. And this is something I've seen intimately as a private tutor working with so many different ages but specifically with high schoolers right now, we can see that our students are taking more honors classes, more AP classes than ever. And they mean so much less because that's the solution. The solution has been so far, if you have an advanced child, throw them in nothing but advanced classes, make them take college courses essentially too early. And then we'll just dumb down the college courses because we want everyone's confidence to be up. There's great inflation and all this stuff happening. And I think that's where it came from, is that these kids start out being advanced. We think the solution is more work. And then what happens is they get more work. It's still not enough. And it just results in this crazy stress level. And then they get to college. They finally get through this college admissions process. They get to college and they go, wait a second. Why do I not understand how to do my work? I don't know how to study College is hard for me because they weren't truly prepared by the quality of what they were doing. No one taught them study habits. No one took the time to think about all those skills they would need aside from just the quantity and the content. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm going to throw myself under the bus here and be sort of like, you know, I, I'm not proud of it, but it's, uh, it's just a reality of who I was. And it's, it, I was almost like your eldest at a point. It was like I found the work easy, didn't challenge me. And I would do it all and tell the teacher and then she'd give me more work. And I was like, all right, so my reward for being good is more work, which is not engaging me. Well, I'm just going to coast. I'm just going to take it easy. 
And, you know, that's obviously, uh, you know, that was a, a realization on my point that actually this isn't challenging for me. I can go to school, have a pretty good time, not have to work too hard and get decent grades. What if I was actually engaged or stimulated? You know, I could be talking to you from the space station right now. <laughs> but, um, the, the, yeah, so how it is, is I, I was just like, well, what's the point? Why should I try when it's not recognized? I know that's totally not the attitude to have. <laughs> Guilty. No, you, you know, you, you make a very valid point. I was actually speaking to a professional a few weeks ago, and he mentioned to me that in his current position, the way he was treated was like the more he did, the less opportunity he received. Mm. Okay. He said, you know, I'm an overachiever, but it's not worth it in this current work situation that I'm in. So I'm choosing to stay below the radar just to coast. Yeah. And that sounds like you as a student. And I'm sure mm -hmm. that's like many other students out there that they know the more they achieve, the more work there's going to be. So why do it? And why give my best and give my all to the instruction and to the assignments that I have to complete because yeah. I don't want but, that pressure. Yeah, it was a case of it didn't warrant the reward. There was no reward for doing it. It was just like to keep me busy, to keep me quiet whilst the rest of the class carried on. So, yeah, so I was like, well, I can just sit here and daydream and draw pictures and if I had a computer, I can make ridiculous PowerPoint presentations of stick men. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, it was one of those things. Looking back now, I just thought I was amazing, but actually <laughs> the school system sort of let me down, I guess. Well, I wouldn't say that there was no reward. I would just say that the potential reward was not communicated to you. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. It didn't feel worth it in my mind. You know, looking back now, and if it was my kid, I'd be like, "You absolute idiot! Do the work!" Blah blah blah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, yeah, totally hypocritical. I know, but uh, yeah, it's um, at the time I was like, "Oh, what's, what's the point? I'm going to get the same GCSE and get the same qualification as everyone else. Mine might have an A on it. Everyone else's might, you know, have a B or C, whatever. Some people's will get an A. You know, but there's no point there's no reward for me at that time obviously obviously now looking back yeah there probably would have been but you i'm thinking about it from the from the learner's perspective from someone in middle school high school how you've got to engage them and i think that's what school is struggling with right now i think that that's tangentially related to the fact that you were expected to excel in every subject and ah. that's definitely something I see with my own son. It's like when it's science, he gets excited about it. And it's like, if he could just do science all day, maybe he mm. would be the next rocket scientist. Maybe he would yeah. be the next astronaut. You never know. If he were allowed to take all the time that he puts into the other subjects that he's less interested in and put it into something that's truly interesting and yeah, exciting yeah. for him, he could be an inventor, you know, mm. but it's much harder. And I think it's hard for me to even say this because I came from the world of liberal arts and always wanting to be very well-rounded. And I, I think that I did get some benefit from that, but I'm an expert in nothing. And I think that's what we're creating is a bunch of students who come out of school and it's like, well, I got an A in math. I got an A in reading. I got an A in science. And it's like, who are you? Mm -hmm. What do you know 
really, really well. I'm very good at taking tests. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And I don't know that that's always a bad thing for everyone. I think that, you know, obviously knowing a little bit about mm-hmm. what's, what's happening in the world is a good thing. But I think if we allowed students at some point go in the direction of their strengths, or their interests, then a lot of that apathy would probably go away. And, you know, they wouldn't need to be thrown extra work because they would go find it on their own. Yeah, that's always been my biggest issue. Like Again, we said this in the conversation with Dialio. Obviously, Dialio is a CFO. He's a numbers guy. I'm totally not a numbers guy. I remember struggling through classes, learning about Pythagorean theorem and multiplying decimals and fractions and long division and algebra and all this stuff, which I, to this day, have never used ever, not even once. The fundamentals of maths, yeah, I get it. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, fine. Percentages, yeah, that's great. But that is pretty much the limit. And to be fair, now everybody walks around with a calculator in their pocket anyway. So the whole concept of needing to know algebra on me, unless you're going to go and work in a field where that, not literally a field, but if you're going to go and work in an area where, you know, algebraic formulas and stuff is necessary, why are we teaching kids it? because it literally serves no purpose. So essentially we're talking about creating tracks for learners at a very young age based on what their interests are and having them specialize within that particular track. Mm -hmm. I guess if they show a natural affinity for something, then... Absolutely. Let them explore it deeper. But obviously there's going to be some children who are just well-rounded and who are just mesmerized by everything and have an interest in everything. And they shouldn't be penalized because of that. It's a case of if your child can't sit still and, you know, it wants to be moving all the time, then let them go and do sports. Let them go and dance. Let them go and express themselves that way. Stop trying to tie them to a desk for an hour at a time and teach them something with a pen in the hand, you know, because it's not them. And ultimately, that's the problem, is that schools right now, it's almost like a a mass production of robots, of employees to be well-rounded and to learn to be somewhere at a certain time, to clock in, to sit down, to do the job, to leave, to go to the bathroom when they're told they can do, to have the dinner when they're told they can do. It's almost like prison, just with slightly more freedom slightly being a key word yeah i mean really what we should be doing is when our kids bring home a report card and it has two a's a b and a c i mean instead of what most parents do which is they see the deficiencies in the subjects that the student has a b and a c in and they think about well we need to bring those up what if instead we looked at it the other way around and we said okay the ones that they have an a in they may be the ones that they're most interested in mm-hmm. it may just be that they're the easiest but you know <laughs> if you ha- if you used that as a way to have a conversation with your kids and say like oh it looks like you really like science what have you been doing in science and mm-hmm. maybe go and find them a science camp or you know show them in these subtle ways that you are interested in what they're interested in and really just don't even talk about the B or the C, especially mm-hmm. if they're at an elementary level where that's not going to follow them. That's not going to have <laughs> any real effect. Instead, we train the kids to look at it as though, oh my gosh, I'm bringing home a less than perfect report card. I have to be perfect in every subject or mm-hmm. else my parents will get mad. You know, we don't have to be part of that problem. I think even if the school 
is sending them that message. At home, we can do something different just by looking at something differently and not getting upset about a quote-unquote deficiency. Okay, so what do we say to the parent that was failed by the education system themselves and does not have confidence and really doesn't have the understanding of the benefits of education for their child. So they look at education as potentially, or a school as a babysitter versus a place that can open up doors for their children, children's future, basically. What do we say to those parents? Well, first of all, I would probably agree with them. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, well, you're not wrong, but I think it's a matter of the awareness that education doesn't just happen at school. And when we say education and parents automatically associated with high school or with whatever they went through, they do have that understand or that idea that, well, school is just all about book learning and you need to worry about that. Just get through it kind of thing. Instead, if they saw education as what is happening every single day, you know, when you are a child, no matter where you are, then I think they might take a little more responsibility for all of the experiences, meaning every single interaction your child has could potentially be part of their life education. And once they start to put their children in maybe a more positive environment or with a different peer group, with, a, with different adults that could have that impact, give them internship opportunities or whatever it is that they value, if they start to see that as part of education, then I think they'll kind of naturally see that, oh, you know what, my child's doing really well in this extracurricular or something that I want them to do well in. But in order to round that out, they also need to do well in this class or get a a diploma, do well in the SAT so they can then go study that in college. You know, so there is a place for that. But I don't think that we should send parents the message that education starts at school. Plenty of people say education starts at home, but I think a lot of parents assume that's just reading books to your child before kindergarten. And then once they hit kindergarten, it's like hands off. And the truth is education continues. And if anything, what you're doing with them, the messages you're sending them, the emotional intelligence you're giving them Mm. is way more important, you know, because you're teaching them how to deal with the teachers, the students, the assignments, everything that they're doing at school, the way they approach that is a reflection of what they've been taught at home and in their immediate peer group and with their siblings and stuff. So, yeah, I think it's just more don't talk about school as the initial solution necessarily. Talk to people as the school should be a partner. It should be something that supplements really what you're doing at home instead of the other way around. Those are great points, Chelsea. I agree with you. There is a segment of parents who, as you said earlier in our conversation, that they just don't have the confidence and their abilities to support their learners in their education. And they're really dependent on schools, on outside entities to do that because they just lack the confidence to think that they can make a difference in what they do and how they do it. So that's something for us to think about. Now, what would you say to homeschoolers? What would you say to parents that have the courage to take their students out of traditional schools and teach them at home? I would say 
first of all, if you're making that type of courageous and dedicated choice, don't just replicate what the schools are doing at home. Because I think that's the biggest mistake is that it's the same issue. Parents don't have the confidence in themselves to do something completely different. So they say, well, I'm going to have control over my child's environment, but I'm still going to teach them math and science and English and Spanish and, you know, everything in the same way, using the same types of materials. And I think that, again, if you want to have your child learn math and, and they're interested in it, then, then there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But too many people just change the environment and they give up the opportunity to really give their children educational experiences because they're so tied to the schedule, to the idea that three or four days a week, you have to be doing this particular subject, you know, and you have to do four pages of English and read this book or whatever it is in order to be successful. So they're really just perpetuating the same ideas, even though, again, like they made a courageous choice and they're giving their child the number one thing they need, which is quality time and attention from you. And in that choice, you have such a huge opportunity to expand their horizons and you don't have to, you know, send them on expensive trips or to expensive camps or anything like that. I think it's every interaction they have, give them the idea that that is something that they can choose to make an educational experience. So they can ask questions, they can get involved with adults, they can go out and volunteer somewhere. All of those things to me are so much more important than sitting there and, and completing work. Aside from the things you have to prove to the state, really, you just have so much freedom. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, don't take advantage of that. It's, it's funny because, again, I wasn't homeschooled, but I, I remember like even going to the supermarket as a child with, with my younger sister. My mum would give us like a challenge to basically add up the shopping as we went on like a pen and paper. And didn't even realize, I just thought this was a fun game mum would come up with to stop me from running around. But actually, it was maths. It was just basically just, you know, supplementing addition and subtraction and stuff like that. And like I said, stopped, kept me and my sister engaged rather than us trying to tear the supermarket to pieces. I guess every opportunity has the potential to be a learning opportunity. You just have to get a little creative with it, which is what schools seem to fail at. Yes. I'm actually kind of speechless because in our experiences, so we do provide curriculum and services to homeschoolers. And Chelsea, to your point, what we found is that parents are just looking for the same thing. And when I say the same thing in terms of curriculum and is basically content acquisition and they're utilizing online tools or even printed materials and basically doing the same thing as happening in the classroom. And what we're saying is it doesn't work in the classroom and it's not going to work at home because the education model and the instructional model is what actually needs to shift, not necessarily just the environment. And so when you have a parent that says, okay, I'm going to take my child out of Okie Doke Elementary or Okie Doke High School and bring them home, and then I'm going to put them on Khan Academy or some other online platform that just feeds them videos and makes them do assignments, and you say, okay, I feel good because I'm homeschooling my student. You're not doing anything better. 
and, or, and doing anything different. And so the instructional model that we propose for homeschoolers is really focused around experiential learning and everything that you said, Chelsea and David, and changing the paradigm of what instruction is supposed to look like. It's not look at a video and do this work or take this multiple choice test on this computer and get your, and get your grade. And that counts as you learning something. No, it's look at this information. Now go create something that's tangible and now make it valuable to someone. You know, that's a true education. And that speaks to like the volunteering experience that you were talking about earlier, Chelsea. That's an education model that really prepares learners for the future. It's not about how much information they know. It's about what information they know, what they can create from it, and how can they create value from their creation. And so when parents really take that in and understand that, that's when there's going to be a homeschool revelation from my perspective. Other than that, I think majority, or I'm not going to say majority, I would say at least 50% of homeschool parents are definitely the newer homeschool parents and not fully taking the opportunity and really seizing it because they don't know. And hopefully hearing this podcast can open some doors for them and remove some barriers on what is possible for what takes place in their homeschool. So, yeah, great. Great. So, team, is there anything else we want to touch on? Any other problem, solution? or barrier that we can kick down? Well, I just want to reinforce what you just summarized, which is basically that parents should have confidence in their own voices, whether your child is homeschooled or in public school or any other form of education, you know them best and you can show them to use their own voice by the way that you use yours. You know, that's really the first model that they see. So when you know that something is wrong for your child, go in and and stand up for them. Say, no, my child's not doing this work or this homework or this. If your child tells you something happened at school with their teacher, believe them. You know, that's my first thing is believe your child, advocate for them. And when you show them that, you're automatically teaching them that they need to do the same thing for themselves. So I think ultimately it's just that parents need to believe in themselves as the first and really ultimate educator. And that usually means partnering with schools. Occasionally that can mean conflict, but you have to be comfortable with that. Okay, well, that seems like a good place to end the conversation there. I will say a huge thank you to Chelsea. Thank you for joining us today and bringing your fantastic insight. As always, thank you, Justice, taking the time out of your uh, schedule to record with us today. And finally, thank you to you listening to this. We really appreciate your attention and hopefully you have found this conversation useful, interesting, and maybe in places entertaining. If you would like to find out more about what we stand for here at 24-7 Teach, you can head over to 247teach.org to find out more. And if you want to find out more about some of our own models, our own ways of doing things, want to get a little bit more hands-on, then head over to the 247learningcenter.org and you can get involved. With that said, thank you again, guys, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you. All right, thank you and take care.